Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Man in the Arena. Today, we have an awesome guest here with me. His name is Jonathan Lee Iverson. He was the last ever ringmaster for the Barnum & Bailey's um, Circus, and he was also the first ever African-American ringmaster for the circus. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Absolutely. So uh, I wanted to start with kind of what your path was um, to becoming a ringmaster. I know you were with the boy, the boys choir of Harlem and friends when you were young, even before you were 18. Um, would you mind talking a little about a little bit about those days um, with the choir when you were in uh, living in New York City? Well, thank you very much. I was with the boys choir of Harlem. Um, the boys choir of Harlem, a fantastic organization established by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Walter J. Turnbull, the late great Dr. Walter J. Turnbull, who really wanted to use the tool of music to um, uh, really enhance the life of uh, boys in the New York area. Um, mostly African-American, of course, and you know, but it was welcome to everybody. Um, it started in Ephesus Church in Harlem, and it eventually became incorporated as the Boys Choir of Harlem. Uh, it was just a wonderful organization I caught wind of as a young uh, preteen. Um, I had always wanted to travel, and uh, they really <laughs> seemed like a means for me to do so. Um, I never realized it was a, an elite choir until I got there. Uh, it was a lot of hard work my first 18 months. Um, but eventually I would uh, get selected to go on a lot of the wonderful tours and really it was life changing. It opened my eyes to just so much uh, of the power of uh, arts education, uh, music, uh, just, you know, culture and, you know, just being around so many different people. I just was very fortunate as a young person. Um, I, I travel a great deal. Um, I really just enjoyed um, the company of some wonderful uh, legendary artists and the company of great dignitaries and statesmen. A highlight of my life was, of course, singing for uh, the late, great Nelson Mandela upon his release. That's really awesome. States, yes, and that was a really wonderful occasion. We were at the Kennedy Airport and we, I believe we were singing uh, the South African National Anthem, I believe. And... Um, Whatever it was, it was a haze because <laughs> it was like, oh, my goodness, you know, he had been such a giant in our consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, he'd only really been resigned to history for us. And, you know, his release was such a surprise and such a momentous event. And to be selected to be a part of that was just truly, um, truly special. That is very, very cool. And I read some articles about you guys when you were in the choir and you guys performed in, pr in front of several presidents. You even performed with Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder. Is that correct? Oh, that's very true. Um, uh, we actually opened the show for uh, Ray Charles in, uh, I believe it was Dallas, Texas. Um, performed with Stevie Wonder, the great Stevie Wonder, very, uh, really kind man. Um, and just, of course, he's one of the greatest uh, uh, musicians to ever walk the earth, um, performed with so many uh, wonderful people and shared the bill with the likes of Placido Domingo and uh, Lou Rawls and uh, Lena Horn and Betty Buckley, Quincy Jones. We were on Quincy Jones's wonderful album, A Soulful Celebration. Uh, uh, the Handel's Messiah's A Soulful Celebration. We were on the soundtracks for Denzel Washington's first Academy Award winner, uh, wow. which was uh, Glory. 
Um, also uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X and Spike Lee's Jungle Fever. Um, it, it was just a really adventurous childhood. I also was at the, I also attended the Fiorello H. LaGuardia High School of Music and Art and Performing Arts. So I just enjoyed this incredible, rich arts education and sort of double life. You know, I would be in Spanish class one weekend in Spain the next week. So it, it was really <laughs> a really a remarkable adventure for me. Your education in Spanish immediately paying off with going over to Spain and yeah, one and could say there. that you know of course being a you know a teen you know the whole goal was can I speak to that pretty Spanish girl you know that was the, <laughs> that was the whole goal <laughs> absolutely that's amazing did any of the others that were um, in your choir when you were a kid become something as you did become a uh, you obviously became a ringmaster did any of them become artists themselves. Um, yes, I, I believe a few did. I believe actually more so on the business end. Uh, there were uh, several gentlemen on the business end who, uh, uh, you know, I think they're much smarter than me. <laughs> they went in on the business end of it. And um, others, you know, they, they really ventured into different forms of uh, uh, different fields, uh, some into medicine, some into real estate, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, and things like that. But I think, uh, you know, the lessons from the choir really had everything to do with, with uh, self-determination, being able to be a real good citizen. You know, that was always something that Dr. Turnbull emphasized, that we would be good citizens. He wanted that more for us than us being good musicians. And of course, he set a high bar for our musicality. Um, he himself was an accomplished musician. And so, you know, I mean, there's no way in the world you're going to open for the likes of Ray Charles and share the stage with the likes of Stevie Wonder and not have something, Definitely. <laughs> you know, Definitely. Of, of worth. And so we were really uh, reputable as a boy choir. And um, I mean, we enjoyed that reputation. We enjoyed, you know, I think it was a great lesson for us as young people to just see the value of working for something and, and failing at something and getting up again and learning how to do it better. I think that there's no greater lesson. And I think that's why the arts and sports are so integral to our education. And I think they should just be as they should be regarded just as much as we do uh, math and science and, and the like. I love that. I like that a lot. Um, moving on to chapter two, kind of of your career as as a ringmaster now, uh, how did the position originally come about? How was it presented to you and how did you audition for the position originally? It was a happy accident. Um, I was auditioning. My, my original plan, I had just graduated the Hart School of Music in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, which is part of the University of Hartford. The plan was to really just go to Europe and continue my studies in opera. So that was the trek I was set to do. I needed to raise money, so I did what I could, and that was audition and see what shows or what programs I could get in to raise some capital. And so upon auditioning for the Fireside Dinner Theater, their Christmas show, and the auditions were held in New York, I happened into the director of the Christmas show who also happened to be directing Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. And it so happened that he was in he was in the market for a ringmaster for the newest edition of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. None of this was known to me um, until I received a call later that in the evening after following my audition for the dinner theater, which I I um, I got that as well. But um, I was 
it was I, I was given the request that they wanted to know if I'd like to um, you know try out for ringmaster. I was up against 30 other candidates. Um, it was a rigorous, uh, rigorous uh, audition process. I must have auditioned three different times. Uh, first, they had me record uh, a video with the director for the producer. Uh, then there was another live audition somewhere. And then I had a final audition with the, uh, the late great vice president of, uh, of uh, talent and production, uh, Mr. Tim Holst who uh, actually came to um, Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, where we were performing the uh, dinner theater show. And uh, he auditioned me there and then he interviewed me and then the rest was history. That's really cool. So what was your, what was your first set of shows like with the circus? Were you nervous going into it? Did you feel, did you have all the scripts down and everything like that? And you felt you good going into it? You know, the first few shows, uh, it, it just was an adjustment. I realized how prepared I actually was. Um, it wasn't so much the performing aspect. I didn't have butterflies at all because I'd been performing so long. Um, I, and I was actually shocked that I, was, I wasn't as nervous as I thought I might be because it was just a new, a new thing, you know? I mean, I was in an arena, not a theater. Right. And, and um, you know, it, it was very obvious and clear to me that the circus is is a living, breathing organism. And it, it's a lively show that can change on a dime. Uh, so no show is, we, we always would joke in the circus world, you know, you're never going to have a boring day. No show is the same. Sure, I had a script and lines, but I can tell you, I never performed a show in the many, many shows we would perform that went according <laughs> to, as planned. It, it never went accordingly. Nothing ever went smoothly. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, there was always something uh, for better or for worse um, that, that was there. And so um, my, my method in, in really learning my scripts were, I always learned them uh, as best as I could and get them down to memory. So it could just, I would have it in my bones. That's how mm -hmm. I would describe it. And that's how I would always tell, um, you know, young acting students and theater students uh, and, you know, opera, have your script down to where, you know, it, you know, it as good as you know, your name, um, because you're going to, life is going to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> during that show something is going to go off where you're going to have to know how to pivot you're going to have to know how to uh, expand some things within the script you're going to have to really use your creativity at some point um, and so knowing the script as well as you can is really the the foundation for everything else you know they always said about the great Michael Jordan the legendary basketball player was that you know all those fabulous moves we'd see him do in the game. He never practiced those. What he practiced constantly was his fundamentals. You know, same thing with the late, great Kobe Bryant and same thing with the, with uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr. You yeah. know, if you look at their training, they're not doing anything sensational. They're just biting down on their fundamentals. Mm -hmm. they, they do as a, a great juggler friend of mine, Paris, hip hop juggler told me, you know, you have to fall in love with the ugly, <laughs> the just the ugly work, the ugly work, the ugly mundane work. If you're going to do great things, you have to fall in love with the just dry, mundane, not so right. glamorous fundamentals. And uh, once you get those down, 
um, that's where the magic happens it, when the live show happens because there's a new energy mm-hmm. that comes out. But if you're if you're steady on your fundamentals, it's it's really that that's where all that, that those amazing highlights occur. And that's something I actually learned from the Boys Choir of Harlem. I mean, we did so many wonderful things. Um, we had so many great adventures. But the great thing I remember most of all was those ugly mundane <laughs> rehearsals where we would just do things over and over again and of course as a kid you think it's torture you yeah, think it's absolutely. horrible you're absolutely. like what is wrong with these people <laughs> and then you get out there and you see you bear fruit mm-hmm. and you realize oh my goodness we have so much stamina oh my goodness uh wow i i i could pivot this this is you know i remember we we were doing it was so crazy we had so much energy so we they had overbooked um, our concert. We were somewhere and it was requested of us if we could do two additional shows in the same night <laughs> because they under they undersold it. They didn't think we were, and no, people were coming out in droves. And so, wow. you know, our director came to us and, you know, he, you know, he, he used to frighten us, but he came pleading kind of it. He said, listen, you know, we'll, we'll cut some things in the show, but listen, I'll, I need you guys to, you know, we'll fix this next year, but I need you guys to come through for me and we're going to do three shows tonight. And we did. Wow. And everybody had the energy and had the focus to do it. And that came from all those all those boring rehearsals, all those mm-hmm. boring warm-ups, and all the things that we had been doing before that it's just mundane, boring. Oh goodness, what is this again? And that having that bedrock is what allowed us to be able to pivot the way we did and and do those three shows. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that prepared you well for the circus too, where you're doing three or four shows a day, right? You know, it, it very much did. I think more so with. Um, in every way, really, in every way. I mean, obviously, uh, I, I had the, uh, I, I learned proper vocal technique. Mm-hmm. I learned uh, proper performing etiquette. Um, I learned how to also carry myself socially. And that's a big deal because yeah. being ringmaster, you are the face of the institution. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be, you know, I always compared being the ringmaster to like a, a poor man's uh, presidential campaign. I mean, because you're you're always out in the public, you're always meeting people. Once that suit and top hat goes on, um, you're an ambassador. So in addition to performing your duties, um, you're you're doing uh, countless uh, press junkets and special events and you you know all sorts of things mm-hmm. and you have to have the you have to have the stamina the enthusiasm the focus and the experience to really endure and to make the best of every effort every moment you're out there definitely when you talked about the the on the fly changes during the show were most of those due to something that the animals were doing or was it something that just couldn't be controlled normally during the show was it were elephants walking off where they shouldn't go or trapeze artists doing things that weren't part of the the standard set or what were most of the changes due to believe it or not the most predictable part of the circus are the animals 
Really? The four, you never have a problem with four-legged mammals. <laughs> it's the two-legged mammals you got to worry about. No, the animals, of course not, because animals are simple. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, not, it's not complicated. You know, people who don't know anything complicated. Animals, you just feed them and treat them respectfully <laughs> for what they do and they'll cooperate. It, it's yep. really not hard. I mean, it, it's a lot of work. You have to be consistent. Um, I'm no animal trainer, but I, I, I know the best and I've watched them. And, you know, that is, that's not a glamorous um, a vocation. No, no, no. That is not a vocation that you go in to get rich. You go into it because you really actually just really love being around animals. It's mm. not something for me. I'm a New Yorker. The most exotic thing I grew up with was squirrels. So I'm not that guy. I'm not, Pigeons. I don't, yeah, I don't get that fuzzy feeling or whatever, but I, I respect um, what people who are in that trade, they do. And mm -hmm. uh, those who do it correctly um it, it's it's really a lifestyle it, they don't have days off everything revolves around the animals and their need and what they have and the number one thing is you have to be consistent you have to be consistent in your attitude you have to be consistent in um their treatment you have to be consistent in really uh being able to be fluent with how they're doing that day as the great alexander lacy one of the great uh, lion tiger trainers in the world told me upon working with him, he said every morning he gets up and he, he says, I don't just work them out physically, but before that I have to check and see, I have to look at them to see if psychologically they are uh, capable or ready to perform that day. Right. I mean, it, it's a, it's a relationship and he, cool. he told me, yeah, he's told me, I mean, I, I didn't notice it much, but he said, you know, believe it or not, I don't always take the full number of cats out there. You may not notice it, but, and he told me, he said, I don't always take the full number of cats out there to um, perform because sometimes they're just not, they're just not in it. Yeah. You know, they're just, they just, what are you going to do with a 600 pound tiger? You're going to mm -hmm. literally, what are you going to do? You're going to make for something you, like, I mean, people come up with some absurd things. You, you can't make mm -hmm. an 8,000 pound elephant do what it doesn't want to do. It's the second smartest land mammal on earth. Exactly. It knows it can kill you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's not like you, you're going to force these animals to do anything. You have to build a relationship. You have to build a trust. Mm-hmm. And then that's how that goes. Some animals take to performing. They're like human beings in that sense. Every animal has their own peculiar personality. Mm -hmm. And I used to watch it. There were elephants on the show. There was one particular elephant. I couldn't go past her without her, you know, slobbing me with her dog on trunk. <laughs> she was an attention getter. She, that's what she was. She, she loved and that's who she was. There was another elephant on the other hand where our trainers would warn us, you don't want to be alone with her because she's mischievous as she would. <laughs> she would do like little sneaky things. And I'd see those types of personalities throughout all the animals. All the animals are like that. You know, right. they all have their little, some are, some are jerks, Mm -hmm. Some are bullies, some are real tender, some really love attention, some are very affectionate, some are really awesome performers, some just do just enough, mm -hmm. you know, because they know, well, you know, I come out here, they're gonna like me anyway. I mean, right. it, so it's, it's all of those things that go into it. And a good animal trainer knows that and a good animal trainer acts accordingly, never loses their patience because, 
you know, they're going to put themselves in danger first and foremost. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so um, the animals really were interesting. Yeah, the animals were always predictable. That that was that was the least. I don't even and to be quite frank, I don't recall any incidences with an animal ever uh, mm -hmm. during the performance. I remember a couple of times maybe uh, an animal act was cut short because um, you know it just became clear that you know maybe an elephant or a horse were they weren't going to do the mm -hmm. trick wasn't their night for whatever right for whatever reason and they just you know signal me and i could okay so we got to wrap this up mm -hmm. but that was about it and if you're talking about animals just losing it what please they, <laughs> they well and they slept well and they were treated well and they were that's really cool they enjoyed themselves but people on the other hand most of our mishaps really were um, and I was very fortunate. Most of my mishaps that I had a cover for were just technical things. Maybe something in the rigging wasn't correct. And, mm -hmm. you know, thank goodness we have a very alert and aware floor crew uh, that would catch certain things. And so they would signal to me if I could stretch, um, you know, a section to give, to buy them time to rectify a situation. That's mostly uh, what I had to cover. There would be some accidents. There would be some accidents, uh, you know, uh, some worse than others that, you know, you had to cover, you had to keep the show going and you had to make sure the the artist was um, uh, in good care. Right, right. Who would you say outside of the actual show itself are the kind of most interesting group of people that are involved with the circus? In terms Ooh, of people was, that you just found interesting talking to, was it the clowns, trapeze, trainers? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting. I would say um, everybody really has their kind of thing, right? I mean, when I was young and single, of course, the most interesting were the production ladies and, <laughs> and the dancers, you know, you know, you're mm -hmm. running, trying to see who you can date. These are the most beautiful people in the world with the most glorious and capable bodies ever so everybody was exotic to each other mm -hmm. um uh as far as you know personalities and stories hands down it would be the clowns i mean you know uh <laughs> just interesting people very interesting <laughs> people the musicians as well you know we always had a live band um in the show and it always shocked people because it seemed so seamless uh, but the music and the musical legacy of ringling brothers is integral and um it, it's always been great um but i i would hang out with a lot of the, the full, uh, gentlemen from the band or the musicians rather from the band we had some ladies as well um mm -hmm. mainly uh, band members um a couple of uh Every now and then a couple of acrobats, you know, um, you know, it just, I think it's interesting. I think it all depends on um, just a certain energy you get from people. You know, um, I always found some uh, trapeze artists to be really uh, fun to be around and um, really enlightening to be around. Mm -hmm. Just, I, and but I, I kind of bounced around. That's it. And that would be in line with what a ringmaster would do. You know, he's- Yeah, definitely. He's a friend to all, but a friend to no one. You know, he doesn't have favorites, and that's true, um, because you're going to have to represent all of these folks with with a certain enthusiasm mm -hmm. and, uh, and and a certain uh, respect that you want the audience to um, um, enjoy and 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 know what you're talking about. So, um, yeah, I mean, I kind of bounced around. I, I always found 
I personally, I think circus people are just far more interesting than everybody else in entertainment. They, oh, just, they have to be. Yeah, because the story, because you're not playing an animal trainer, you're not playing a trapeze artist, you're mm -hmm. not playing a clown. You know, you are those things. And so everything in your life revolve, revolves around that. And so that's really interesting. And of course, the high risk. Yeah. You know, it's just different um, depending on your discipline. It's just, you know, to see how people operate um, and how they prepare themselves and why they would even embrace a life because circus is not a backup plan. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like somebody goes, oh, well, you know, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll run away with the circus. No, you, I mean, mm -hmm. this is something you, you come into because you feel pulled into it. You, you feel it's a calling, it's an opportunity, or it's something you're born into. That's usually how it works. But at all times, it's something that you, you either embrace or you don't. So it's one right. of those things. And few people don't embrace the life mm -hmm. because it's such an incredible and highly unusual uh, uh, way to live. Yeah, definitely. And I did want to talk about that a bit. Your life on the road um, with the circus had to have been extremely interesting. You guys are training from city to city, correct? Oh, yes. Uh, well, before we even get um, on the road, mm -hmm. we, um, we have what's called, what, what's classically called the winter quarters. And so that's where we um, set up shop to build the show, so to speak. We rehearse, we build the show, work out the kinks. And uh, to be quite frank, it's something we're going to do throughout the entire uh, season mm -hmm. um, of the tour. But um, we really lay down the foundation of what it is we're um, looking to create and push forth um, in our winter quarter season. And that's about like four to five weeks of just strict, intense rehearsal, show bill, uh, recreating things we thought might go and then, oh no, this doesn't work. Um, really just uh, investing in putting the magic together. And this is in between the traditional tours, correct? So when you're not actually touring from city to city, you're in your winter quarters in Sarasota? That's correct. Um, okay. Well, for me, it was, uh, we were in Tampa. Uh, we oh, okay, were in, nice. We were in the Tampa area. And so um, we would, uh, at least in my last year, we, um, we um, were in the, the uh, Fell Studios. And so they have, I think, the second largest uh, property in all mm -hmm. of Florida. And uh, it was wonderful. I mean, it's nice. just great. They had all this space where we could really um, run the show like if we were in an arena. And, mm -hmm. and I was set up um, so we could really get used to that, that, uh, that, that energy and that feeling. But here's the thing too, with every um, venue we would visit, we would also rehearse again, not a full out rehearsal, but we would just, you know, get a feel of the place, check the rigging, run a couple of the numbers so the animals could get used to it you know, so we could just get used to different spacing because sometimes you have to shift things, you know, depending on how the building is set up, mm -hmm. the riggers have to set it up in a different way uh, to, to accommodate artists and things of that nature. Safety first, of course, but, um, you know, it's always really uh, checking the logistics of what you're going to do because, again, this is a live, living, breathing entity. Yep. Yep. When you were actually on tour, what was your kind of sleeping arrangement like? What was a day in the life for you um, on a show day and, a, and maybe a travel day? 
travel day was the best day uh, because I was on the world's largest privately owned train. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, at least I did, you know, it was like any, we called it a city without a zip code. And uh, it was set up like any city. You know, I always used to joke with people. I lived in the suburbs. You know, <laughs> I had my own, basically, I had half a train car with my family. And uh, my kids were very cooperative. We let them know, look, mommy and daddy are going to be out cold. And so you can go watch little shows, hear some snacks. They knew what to do. They didn't get in any trouble. So uh, mm-hmm. maybe mom would sleep for half the day and I would sleep for the other half. Because, you know, after a show run, you are just brutally tired. Oh, I bet. And then we get up, probably watch a movie together, have some snacks or something like that. But it, it's just, I mean, there's nothing like it. It's fun. It's intimate. It's beautiful. Um, it's the greatest way to see the country. It's the greatest sleep you're going to get. I mean, just that, just that the chucking of the train and the way it moves. It's like having a mobile massage or something. <laughs> um, you know, a regular show day, you know, you're just in that mode. You're, you're running off of adrenaline. Um, you may be doing some press junkets throughout the day um, and events. Uh, as well, especially depending on the particular uh, particular date, if we were in one of the major cities like New York City or Los Angeles, California, where there's a lot of press or stuff, we're, we're likely going to be a lot busier, maybe have more shows um, than we usually would. But um, uh, it, it, you know, either way, it's going to be an adventure during the show week. Um, of course, then you, you know, when you, if you can imagine if you're traveling that much, you tend to build relationships throughout the country. So, you know, you may run into family and friends who you're making arrangements for and all sorts of things, doing favors for people, what have you. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's quite festive. Mm-hmm. And I heard that you, you mentioned your wife and your kids. I heard that you got married in between shows. I certainly did, yes. What was was, that like? Oh, that was great. It was November 15, 2001 in, uh, at the United Center in Chicago, Illinois. (laughs) That's awesome. We actually met the minister, uh, the day before, and it was a funny encounter we uh, we just happened into this Presbyterian church and we asked for a minister. We wanted to get married, and uh, she sat us down and you know gave us some counsel and and uh, then we told her when we intended on doing it and and she looked at us like we were crazy, which I don't blame her. And uh, we told her, well, we we'd like to to um, you know we'd like to get married on. We met her on a Wednesday. We said we'd like to get married on Thursday the next day and. She said, oh, no, I can't do that. I'm, I'm, I'm taking my, my son to the circus. And we said, great. Can you do it after the show? <laughs> and she's just like, huh? That's amazing. And we told her, yeah, we're in the show. She's like, Kid. And she just like, she said, I guess. So she came in her frock and everything. And it was mm-hmm. hilarious. And, um, you know, we really kept it low key, honestly. Um, she came in her frock and right in between shows, we went to a suite um in the united center mm-hmm. uh, the house that michael jordan built and yeah. Um, yeah. had a small ceremony and um and that was that and we've been going at it for uh 19 years now so it worked out That's for really us awesome congratulations yeah. thank you um with your kids what was what was their childhood like on, on the road i'm sure it was extraordinarily interesting and them looking back on it and maybe talking to other people their age they probably realized just how interesting that was 
Um, I've heard a little bit about the circus school that is built at each city. And if you wouldn't mind elaborating on what that is like, I would be, I would, I would absolutely love to hear it. Oh, absolutely. You know, my children, um, their childhood completely trumped mine. I always wanted to give children, my children, what I had growing up. I had a, a, a really beautiful childhood, especially when I ventured into the Boys Choir of Harlem. And theirs just blew mine away. I mean, um, we have not been apart from each other since they've been born. Mm -hmm. So my children now respectively are 15 and 11. We've always traveled, played, worked together. And I, you know, I've always reminded them how utterly fortunate, um, utterly fortunate uh, they, they are to have such a, a privilege you know, because obviously most any parents, I would tell them rich, poor, whatever, um, you don't get that. You're not going to be around your family all day, every day. Mm -hmm. You know, only in a circus was I afforded that. And as a result, I always believed that I had the greatest gig in show business. I was doing what I love to do with the people I love the most. And so I was having, I was making a living while having a life. Um, I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to have this distance, distant relationship with my wife and my kids and not being there. They could be there with me. And so my wife, uh, she originally came onto the show as a dancer uh, by way of Brazil. She was the dance captain and translator for uh, the first troupe of Brazilian dancers we had. And uh, she would advance uh um, during her career to becoming production manager. And that's the person who oversaw the entire show. And um, so it was in her hands, the entire performing aspect of the show, the multi-million dollar <laughs> uh, entity that it was, it was in her hands. She captained that ship. And so essentially she was awesome. my boss, which mm -hmm. my daughter would love, love to tell people, my daddy's the ringmaster, but mom's the boss. She would love doing it. <laughs> Um, and uh, she's a little sassy some. She's wonderful, though. <laughs> uh, my children, uh, their adventures were, as you can imagine, I mean, you know, one day your backyard is Disney World, the next day Disneyland, the next day it's, you know, uh, the, the, the St. Louis Arch, you know. Um, they um, really got a hands-on appreciation of this great nation and its sights. Uh, we had uh, some really wonderful teachers. Uh, we would set up school and our nursery in each venue. So of course they would uh, mark out a, a particular space in every venue and mm -hmm. every um, venue we visited to uh, have schooling and of course nursery uh, services as well. Um, obviously when you have schooling that close, um, it just makes it that much easier for us as parents to be involved. And so it was just a wonderful thing. Um, so that's what they would do. They would do uh, school all year round. And it was four hours a day. And then they would venture over to the nursery and uh, be with their friends and stuff like that. Sometimes I'd let them stay in my dressing room if they wanted to. 
um, you know, if the dressing room was big enough and they just wanted to hang out with dad or whatever. And I had some toys, or whatever, and I'd let them stay in my dressing room or their mother, my daughter, for instance, would hang out with her mother when she was a dancer in, in the dancer's dressing room, which explains why my daughter thinks she's part Beyonce and part Elsa, because she was around all of these fabulous, gorgeous and mm -hmm. really incredible women. Uh, who, you know, that's where she, she learned how to walk in a dancer's dressing room and uh, being around these incredible women. You know, I mean, she was doing makeup early. You know, usually you don't want your kids, your, your daughters to do that until they're a certain age, but mm -hmm. it would have been like, I mean, it would have been torment not to yeah, do that. Yeah, impossible. Everyone's wearing like, makeup. Right, that's what she saw. So she really, she really learned showmanship and, um, but also she learned hard work. Mm -hmm. watching all of these amazing women because you know as glamorous as they are and as feminine and and just epic as the you know the classic circus showgirl is she's also very very tough mm -hmm. and she she's a workhorse and she you know she gets it done sometimes even better than the men you know I mean <laughs> so it, it was a great thing for her to see it was a great thing for both my son and daughter to see um women who were actually producing the show, women in positions of uh, operating and, and managing the show like their mother. They also lived in the time of uh, Obama when President Obama was their president and you know, their mother's from Brazil. So um, they, when Brazil elected their first female president, uh, Ajuma, I believe her name was something like that. I'm sure I butch butchered her name, but- um, You know more than me. Yeah, they were in that kind of, atmosphere and so also seeing their father in the center of the show guiding it I think it, it really um really gave them a sense of unconscious con uh, confidence mm -hmm. uh, in their own abilities and and what they wanted to do and um you know and so I think it, it was just an extraordinary existence for them and they're just really great kids their extracurricular activities were actually imagine your gym class is with um you know world-class acrobat <laughs> so you're learning the real stuff and yeah. they did you know they were they learned how to really stretch. They learned their splits. My daughter was doing some contortion work for a while with a wonderful um, a Mongolian uh, coach uh, uh, for some time. It, it was a lot of fun. That's amazing. You know, uh, for them. Um, and they carved out their own work ethic from that. You know, I would watch them, especially my daughter, how like, you know, she's so competitive. So she would just really work so hard to, uh, get certain things done and and, and, it, and it paid off because they ended up with uh, jobs of their own on the show um, in our last years with the show. Uh, my son actually played me. Uh, that is awesome. <laughs> and his sister was his understudy. So it was it was really, really great for them. And I, I was really proud of them. And I told them, I said, who, who could who could put that on their resume? This was your first job ever. So wow. Yeah, my first job, coffee shop. Their first job, <laughs> in the circus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As ringmaster in training. That's amazing. And I can tell you, it was really, um, a, it was great for me to see them do that because um, I didn't realize how much they watched me until mm -hmm. I saw, you know, my son get out there and do, you know, do his thing. It was so much, it was, it was so intense. It was, the director actually gave me a note for me to do me 
following him. I said, you got to be crazy. It was so funny. He said, you see how your son did? I said, yeah, real mm-hmm. funny. But he was really doing it up well. I mean, he really had everything down. And it was his own charm. Mm-hmm. It was his own sense of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, instincts and things like that. And I was really proud of him. And my daughter, she came in, she did the same thing. And they really just had fun with that. And, uh, you know, it's a great memory that uh, they'll always have. That's very cool. Um, I had one more question for you because I know you have to go here in a few. Um, what were the once the news came? I believe it was in 2016 or 2017 that the circus was going to be closing down. What were the last few shows like for you guys on tour? Um, you with all the performers who have been there for so long. Well, those last few shows were they were it was like all of a sudden we became Hamilton overnight. Um, I think it was really more for the audience than us. Uh, they realized what they were losing. They were losing a piece of Americana. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people, I, what I kept hearing over and over again, uh, people were in a very apologetic way, were saying, you know, I, I neglected it so long, you know, every year, oh, I'll go next year, I'll go next year, and now it won't be here. You know, for us as performers, you know, when you're a performing artist, you're used to moving on. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, everybody knew eventually you're going to have to leave the show. Um, eventually you're going to have to, you know, grow up and <laughs> go into the real world, I guess. Right. Um, but you never thought it would leave us, you know, and this was something I was hoping to bring my own uh, grandkids to God willing, you know, to, you know, Hey, this is where it all started for me and your grandmother. And, you know, I've, that's was my hope that it would be there for, um, uh, uh, Americans in the future and goodness knows as polarized as we are right now we would we really do need a good circus a yes good circus. And, absolutely and think, we do you know the message of the circus is about uh unity it's about coming together circus is a circle and from the latin root for circle and it, it, there's no hierarchy there's you know, there's no race, there's no religion, there's no sexual orientation, there's no nationality. Your citizenship is circus. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as long as you show up, as long as you do what you're supposed to do, as long as you honor the show and your colleagues, and most importantly, your audience, their time and imagination and their money, um, you know, that, that you're embraced. And um, I really when we closed that we got that announcement January 14th 2017 I was in Miami we were my show was in Miami the other show I believe was in Orlando um it was it was heartbreaking only because you know I just felt so terrible for fans I knew mm-hmm. personally who we would every year we would get to those locations and you knew those particular fans, they had their seats ready. Some would come multiple times <laughs> during the runs and they were so giving, you know, that's the thing. Some would come with meals and snacks and some would come with their art and it was a big deal to them. And for many people, it was the real healing agent to, to have the circus in their lives. I met several autistic children who, their parents would say to me, I remember, I'll never forget this family in Jacksonville. They, the mother, her sons were with her and they're dressed in their circus regalia. They're having a blast. And she, lovely lady, she grabs me, they like envelop me with hugs. And she said, you got to understand, this means so much to us. You see this, my, my son over here, 
the ring that he was stressed like out, he was a ringmaster. <laughs> you can't tell, but he's autistic. He didn't say his first words until he was four years old and it was here at Ringling Brothers, wow. his first words. And I'd heard several stories like that from clowns. Our clowns seem to have a way of breaking into that, whatever that spectrum is and really knowing how to communicate to those kids. And, um, you know, to the point where you don't, you, like if you're not careful, you don't know they're not autistic because it's almost like they found their place. Mm -hmm. It's like they just fit right in. But the reality is everybody fits in mm -hmm. the circus. You just have to be genuine. And yeah. it's a very accepting place. And, um, you know, I just thought that was, that that's the thing I didn't want people to, to miss. I didn't want people to not have that anymore. And we don't have it right now. And God knows we need it. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to go to a nice circus right now, be, especially with the lack of any kind of entertainment these days. The circus would yeah. be perfect. Yeah, we have some things going on. Um, there are a lot of different shows uh, that are really, uh, you know, becoming more creative, doing a lot of online offerings. Sure, it's not the same thing. I mean, it's nothing like being in the, uh, right under mm -hmm. the big top or in the arena or wherever. But uh, it's something in uh, a lot of these uh, offerings are really pretty good. They're really good. Uh, yeah. Bernardo Circus is one. Um, in fact, he started doing live shows again. He actually figured out how to keep it safe and socially distant uh, with the Bernardo Circus. I'm uh, a part of the Omnium Circus, which is a new show, a oh, cool. uh, new organization. Yeah, so we're gonna have a um, we're gonna have our first online uh, show in December. And um, I've done some other things with, like with Lone Star Circus and, uh, and, you know, I mean, it's been just a lot of fun. It's different. It's different sitting in front of your computer and going, hey, how you doing, boy and girl? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I did some work with uh, the wonderful Bindlestill Family Circus as well. It's very different. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I miss the energy of the crowd. I miss interacting yeah. with, uh, the, with, with uh, the ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls because, you know, it's like, I think the ringmaster gives them permission to Definitely. Just put their hair down and really have a good time. And that's mm -hmm. what I want for all people. When you come to show, there's no politics, there's no nothing divisive. It's really just having fun, not yeah. taking yourself seriously. It's for you to actually uh, not sit back, not relax, but sit on the edge of your seat and really just enjoy just being entertained, just being taken away and watching the the, the highest expression of human and animal artistry. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's really awesome. Can I ask you one more question? Just because I sure. almost forgot you, I'm a big WWE fan. I'm just very interested in the business <laughs> side of WWE. And I read up that you had a tryout with WWE to be what I assume would be a ring announcer. Yes, I, sir. Yeah, I wanted I to know, <laughs> I, I wanted to know how that, how that went. What was that tryout like and who was it with? Well, it was actually with their, uh, what I call their farmers uh, 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 company, uh, mm -hmm. NXT. Yes. So that's where they start everybody out at. And so, you know, they flew me in. It was, uh, it's an incredible business. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible, they are so, they have such care to detail. Um, I was pleasantly um, surprised to just learn of so many, how, diverse so many people are in their like in their interest mm -hmm. you know you're thinking these may be just big brawny athletes or whatever but they're not a lot you know, you had some people with phds and, yeah you know you had uh, announcers i one of the announcers i met she was like in a uh, 
molecular biology or something. But she said, wow. you know, I always love being in front of a camera. And, you know, you see her, she's a lovely woman and very talented. And you go, yeah, okay, I get it. Molecular biology isn't as exciting, but just it's an incredible company. We just couldn't come to terms as far as uh, payment was concerned. Yep. But, um, you know, listen, I, I, I still think the world, of, I mean, a lot of us, I grew up when it was WWF. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I had the privilege of seeing uh, the great Andre the Giant live at Madison Square Garden. That was like wow. one of the greatest things that happened in my young life. I was like, oh. yes, absolutely. <laughs> Andre the Giant. He was he was the dude, man. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's you know it's an incredible company. Um, I had a wonderful audition that they wanted me, and I really wanted to do it, but you know it's just we just couldn't work things out financially. But uh, who knows? You know, um, one of my uh, I think one of my old man dreams is I, I want a lounge show in Vegas with an orchestra <laughs> and I want to be, uh, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be a ring announcer for all the major boxing matches. Cause oh, Michael be Buffer, incredible. he can't do that forever, man. He's no, the uh -uh. I think he's wonderful. Yeah. I think Jimmy is awesome too. I, I'd love to do, cause I'm a huge fight fan, man. Mm -hmm. that, that would be, that's I'm like, that's all I want. I, that I would be amazing. Vegas, have a Vegas show. Mm -hmm. And and be be a boxing announcer. I yep. mean, that's not much. I mean, God could give me that one. That's no big deal. Yeah, <laughs> we had we had UFC come to Capital One Arena where I work uh, in DC this past November. It was their first time there in ten years, and I wow. wasn't. I was so busy throughout the night, I wasn't really able to poke my head out too much. But the one time that I was able to was right when Bruce and I I made it happen. <laughs> I kind of did it very much with the thought in my brain, but I went out. Uh, and saw Bruce Buffer announce the introductions for the main event, and it was absolutely incredible. I yeah, just wanted to see the introduction. Man. He's something else, man. He he. Listen, those guys are serious. They're great announcers. Mm -hmm. I love their energy. I love the passion. I love how they set the tone um, for each one of those fights. It's amazing. I mean, I, yeah, I'd love to. Oh gosh, I mean that's a big dream of mine. Um, I think that's something I'd probably do, like you know, a little older, because I think there are other things. I'm supposed to do, but look, I would jump on that opportunity so yeah. fast because <laughs> I'm a big fight fan and I respect, uh, I respect athletes period, but fighters have a special place. in my Oh heart. yes, they Definitely. absolutely do. They're yeah. incredible. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. This was really, really fun. Um, hopefully we'll all see you maybe in a few years down the line on our television sets with UFC or with, with somebody right, else. Right. In the meantime, we'll keep up with what was the name of the circus that you're involved with now? Yes, Omnium. 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 Okay, we'll keep yes. up with Omnium and their show coming out in December. Yes. Thank you very much, Jonathan. This was awesome. Hey, man, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Keep the circus alive inside Absolutely. of you. Thank you very much.